0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Christina Edmondson, welcome to Viral Jesus.
2: Jesus is blood-bought gift to us is this destruction of division and disparities. Not a destruction of differences, but a destruction of division and disparities.
1: From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I am so sad, honestly, recording this right now because this is our last episode of season two. And if you know anything about me, you know, I'm pretty dramatic. And so I dramatically wanted to save one of my favorite people for last. I got the opportunity to meet this person in person, in the flash, which rarely happens anymore. Um, So we moved our relationship from just online to offline. And I can tell you, she was just as wise and thoughtful and reasonable and as much of a leader in person as I've always seen her to be online. Our guest today is Christina Edmondson. Christina holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, an MS degree from the University of Rochester in Family Therapy, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. For over a decade, Christina has served in a variety of roles, including recently as the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University. She is also one of the co-hosts of the Truce Table podcast. So, Christina, I like to open every episode by reading to my guests something that they've posted online, either on Instagram or on Twitter or in a blog. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, we've been scouring your social media, just so you know. Uh, But here's what I want to read from you you say this those who benefit from your oppression or silence aren't going to affirm your empowerment. Keep building. Can you unpack that for us?
2: Oh, sure. There are so many things that uh, I have posted. I didn't know what you were going to pull. Ahead of. <laughs> um, well, there you go. Okay. Really, what was in the back of my mind, and you know, I I, I realized that whenever we are tweeting, I mean, some people have a very organized system, right? They're tweeting out of a, a book or a sermon series or a talk or whatever. There are times when when I might tweet or post something that it's um, it's an outworking of an idea that I've been chewing on for quite some time and the the backstory of that tweet is probably for the past year thinking about what it means when our healing is contingent upon the approval or the validation mm. or the enlightenment of those who've hurt us mm. and so that's the backstory <laughs> of that particular tweet and uh just another reminder that if we, you know if, if I'm functioning or if we're functioning in a way where uh we're waiting for healing or we're waiting for wholeness when the one that has harmed us says, okay, I'm good now. Now you can go ahead and heal. Um, one, we've given them too much power, right? And that's re-traumatizing in and of itself. And so that's kind of the backstory of that. And so really the, the tweet is just basically telling people that you also shouldn't be surprised that in your healing, if a part of your healing is then um, is then expressed, through the fact that now you're communicating. Now you're saying wrong is wrong. Now you're saying boundaries, Mm. boundaries. You should not be surprised (laughs) that people who benefit from your silence are like, I don't like who you are now, or you're you're getting a little too rowdy or watch your tone. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. And so that's really what was floating in my head as I tweeted that out.
1: It reminds me, I went to a lecture at Notre Dame once by Tarana Burke, Mm -hmm. and something that she said that, like, I got goosebumps when she said it, and I've been repeating it to my students. She said, on your journey towards healing, everybody can't come. Right. And I just thought that was such a powerful statement, and I hear... Mm-hmm. pieces of that and what you're saying. You actively train companies and churches in intercultural development and conflict group debriefing. What do you find most important when mm. training people to interact interculturally? If we were all to be at one of your seminars or lectures, <laughs> what what are like maybe two or two three things that you're like, okay, if they can just get this, yeah. they'll be better for it.
2: Oh, well, I mean, I think, um, you know, most people who do this type of work would say that we we start with our stuff. And so we don't think about, teach me about the other, the other out there, almost in a voyeuristic museum-like way. Like, teach me how to relate to those people. So the first question or the, the first, I guess, bit of guidance is to look at ourselves. You know, mm. we're not a cultural, And so there are some of us who are faced with that every single day. There's not a day that goes by that we're not reminded of uh, some, some aspect of our cultural identity, true or false. It's, you know, it's kind of projected onto who we are. And then there are others who certainly, at least not explicitly, don't have reminders of that. And so they function in an acultural way and one that's not true. So getting people to notice their own cultural identities is probably wow. <laughs> step one. And then the other part is having the emotional maturity, the spiritual maturity to do that to sit with the discomfort of it and to notice when the um, the angst arises to turn away from it or to become defensive or to start name calling either out loud or in your mind, <laughs> to notice that and to deal with your business, to deal with your own internal work. And so there's a real need for spiritual maturation to do intercultural work. And I yeah. would say even more so wherever you fall kind of within the social castes and the social structures, whether you've been overtly harmed because of your social positionality. Because of your culture, because of racial bias, fill in the blank, right? Or whether you have been in a seat of privilege that you don't recognize maybe you're even sitting in, wherever you find yourself in there, there is a need to be able to sit with the discomfort of it. Otherwise, we will will abort mission before you know all that good discovery and maturation work can actually take root.
1: Have you ever had experiences where you're running a seminar or teaching somebody and oh, there's nev- resistance never, never.
2: Never, never. to that,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Because I would assume, I even just what you said is super powerful. And it's fascinating to me as a communication person, because we typically always start with the other, right? The whole point of understanding a message is mm-hmm. to know who my audience is. And yet in intercultural, it makes complete sense that I have to know my own biases before right. I can even go to trying to understand the other. So you you come in and you you talk to somebody about this, what resistance have you experienced if
2: somebody's like, wait, I'm not, I'm not here to (laughs) reflect on myself. I want to learn how to, how to talk to them. Right. Right. So what I try to do, and again, I have better days than others, but what I try to do is ask people, what do they even think they're here for? So, I mean, expectations are so important to lay out. Right. And so our sense of accomplishment is directly tied to what we are expecting <laughs> to happen. Mm. and uh, and people can come to a training, a meeting, a counseling session, whatever it might be, mediation, and have very different ideas of what they think is going to happen. And so I try to I try to get everybody on the same page of like, what do you think we're about to do? (laughs) And and also when you talked about your field of communication, how you need to know your audience, I would also say you need to know your audience, but you also need to have some insight into how your audience perceives you, right? Because there are are different burdens for different communicators. And so I also spend some time with people having them externalize what they think about me. Now, this isn't, (laughs) which can be, I guess, scary for some people, but I'm often like, you know, when I hit the door, what did you think?
0: Mm. Like, who,
2: you, who do you think I am? And they're like, well, we don't know you. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Your brain has Absolutely. already started formulating a narrative about who I am. And what you could do is ask me to correct that. Or you could choose to agree with your brain, <laughs> which doesn't mm. have the same information that I have about myself, right? Those bits of work are done early on. The piece about what are you expecting to get out of this? And who do you think I am as your teacher? And in some spaces, uh, depending on what, what we're going to be talking about, what we're working through and who my audience is, I may even ask people pretty direct questions. Like, for example, have you ever had a Black woman in an authoritative position teach you something? That's important to talk about because <laughs> yeah. that's what's about to happen. Um, and so, and to wrestle with that, why or why not? And mm-hmm. And what might that mean for this kind of synergistic relationship of learning that we're about to create together? Because I'm not just Putting out, we're also uh, having an experience together. So those are kind of the some of the initial foundational pieces, right, that get laid out. Um, and also, you know, I think um, getting into people's expectations, setting obviously ground rules about what it means to cultivate a space that is necessarily risky. <laughs> it's necessarily risky. I was mm-hmm. talking to a a colleague the other day about this idea of kind of agopic listening and about you know s- sitting with discomfort and listening and learning on the agenda of loving other people that is so risky and i get why people are like i don't want to do this i don't want to play this game <laughs> like i don't want i don't want to be here because right. there really is nothing riskier than loving human beings like loving the humans is really really risky and ultimately the intercultural work the mediation work conflict work dealing with directly around anti racism I would say is love work, is neighbor love work. I think that's just risky work.
1: I do an activity with my students where I show them a picture on a screen of a person. Well, before that, I say, you know, how quickly do you think you make judgments about people? Mm. And they're like, oh, you know, I got to get to know somebody. And then I show a picture and I say, I want you to just tell me, just looking at the picture, what's their job? What's their education level? What's their personality? And it's amazing how quickly their brain gives them answers about a total stranger <laughs> that they've seen for like two seconds. And one of the people I always put up is a photo of Ted Bundy. Mm. And he, who is an attractive, charismatic-looking yeah. guy. And they're like, oh, nice lawyer. And, you know, he's a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. fascinating how your brain does fill in yeah. those blanks. Absolutely. How does this all work online? Do you think <laughs> uh, the internet has made your job
2: 10 times harder? Or there a
1: <laughs> room where it's been a beautiful
2: tool for you? I was thinking the other day about, you know, how long I've engaged the internet, like, you know, very consciously. <laughs> And I guess I would say that, you know, very young Gen Xer, really, really old millennial. I'm <laughs> I, I, I definitely probably feel more like an, a young Gen Xer. So which means that, like, you know, I remember when I got my first email and I remember <laughs> I remember all the things and I remember my space yes. and, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't probably until more so about maybe about a decade ago that I started to. Realize that this is a platform that I'm going to need to engage with some type of methodology. Mm. Like I'm going to, right? And, and part of it was, I was thinking, this is a way to connect with students. And although I was always, always a platform behind. So by the time, like I would. <laughs> <laughs> You're not an early adopter. Exactly. Like I'm, I'm always like, at this point I might even be like two platforms behind. I'm like, you know, I'm just like getting into Instagram. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Slow down, everybody. Where are you now, right? So so all of that to say, I don't consider myself very like hip or savvy in my, in my <laughs> social media engagement. I do try to be responsible with my words. I don't really tweet anything mm. that is like truly off the cuff. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have to go back and apologize, but I'm not like an I'm not an off the cuff kind of person. People might think that, but I'm not. Like I've been chewing on an idea, <laughs> a thought. I've been engaging it with other people <laughs> for a long time um, before I kind of put something out there. And so that's a bit of my personality. Mm. I like things to kind of simmer a little bit. <laughs> Doesn't mean that what is produced is is right, you know, but I have thought about it. And so typically I don't find myself in a place where. I am quickly like trying to take something down. Or, right. um, or 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 I'm or I'm like, what will people think about me? You know, I, I care what people think about me in the sense that our public witness matters. But there are some people, as scripture reminds us, you know, <laughs> we don't want to be spoken well of by everybody. So there, so there are some people that I'm actually okay being like. I don't like Christina. I'm like, well, good. Let me agitate you some more, (laughs) you know? Um, And so anyway, that's kind of my thinking, my framework around what I'm tweeting or, you know, posting or attempting to do.
1: Talk to me about your journey. If we were to talk to 15 year old Christina, would she be shocked at where you are now? Or would she say, nope, that makes perfect sense?
2: oh, I don't know if she would say that. I, yeah, I don't think she would say that it makes perfect sense. You know, it's funny when you say 15 because I have a 15-year-old in my home. And so um, mm. <laughs> so I feel like I'm acquainted with 15, okay? <laughs> I feel like I, I know some things about age 15. Um, well, and yeah, and like 15-year-old me, um, it's so funny that you asked. I was just thinking the other day about how, I, I mean, I think many young people, adolescents, Long for uh, approval, acceptance, but I don't think I ever needed it or ever necessarily longed for it from like the cool kids. As a matter Mm -hmm. of fact, I think that part of what I found interesting very early on was the idea of being with the, I don't care about cool, cool kids. You, You know those kids, right? The people that are like, oh... Oh well, I don't care. Like, and so there is a much more. That, that's always been much more attractive to me, and I think that's probably more consistent with like my personality. And so, um, and so being behind, as I just expressed about, like, I'm always like a platform or two behind. Like it, like I don't feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm letting myself down because you know I'm a little bit slower <laughs> in that regard, or I'm not up on all the lingo. Like I'm still using like my 1985 <laughs> slang that I use bad. I'm still using it now. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. Right. Um, And so 15 year old me was certainly insecure. Um, 15 year old me was, was blessed to have really close proximity to a church tradition with kind of a robust faith and an applied faith. So mm-hmm. I was raised in the uh, progressive Baptist tradition, the historic Black church traditions, and um, I always tell people that it, it was the kind of place where our pastor, who was mentored by Martin Luther King Jr., it's the kind of it's the oh, kind of wow. place where you know one year it was like we need to support the Billy Graham evangelistic revival coming to Baltimore. <laughs> I didn't know much about Billy Graham at that point, but it was like, oh, we go out and we, we share our faith, right? And then the next year we would hear from all kinds of political leaders, like including Jesse Jackson. Like these, these things happened uh, so synergistically, there was no tension between those things at all. And this sense that we had to have, a, have a, um, our connection to Jesus even at a very, very young age, like teenage age, I was thinking like, well, this is supposed to mean something. I didn't know all that it meant, but I still don't. But um, I knew that it was supposed to cause cause us to show up in a certain way. Like when we come to a space, we don't come bringing more trouble, we don't make it worse. <laughs> Right? So I'm always mm-hmm. like, are we making it worse? Cause we're talking now, the Christians. Um, and so, so even at 15, I, I think I was reckoning with that. Um, and I don't think I would have thought, I thought, I, I thought that I would serve the church even through college. I remember telling my husband this, um, when we were dating, we would always say like, oh, we're going to, we're probably going to be deacons. We'll serve the church. We'll be doing our thing and our, whatever our, our disciplines and fields might be. He was in the sciences, I was social science. And, um, that's what we assumed, and uh, so I always assumed that I would be serving the local church, and I still have a deep, deep, deep passion for the local church. So would I think mm-hmm. that I would be like one of the internet Christians, whatever, <laughs> whatever you, you want to call. I don't know what you <laughs> want to call them, Heather, but um because I have this thing about like I feel like if you're a famous Christian, you're going to be famous for your sin. Like that's the one thing that's guaranteed. Mm. Like it's guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> That you are a sinner and you're going to be famous for it. And so there's a sense in which I'm like, oh, like I'm not, you know, I had someone ask me once about like, well, tell me about your brand. I was like, my brand? What are you talking about? Right, right. I mean, I get it on an intellectual level, but still I was like, you know, you got to remember 15 year old me is like, I want to hang around the kids that are so cool. They don't care about being cool, you know? Um, (laughs) And so, and and that is still very much a part of who I am now. So no, I would not have thought that I would. But just so you know,
1: I think that, (laughs) I think that cuts through.
2: Oh. I
1: think that that is your brand, right? Like I see that. in you is that this is a my scholarship right so i'm speaking into an area that i deeply understand and have studied and have legitimate mm-hmm. position in and i'm just sharing with you what i know i'm not trying to create this brand or trying to create this platform i think that that is seen in the type of posts that you create well there it
2: is <laughs> There it is, right? <laughs> Which is
1: authentic to who you are. One of my favorite theories is attraction theory mm-hmm. and communication. Mm-hmm. And it says we like to be around people who are similar to mm-hmm. us. And I think social media has made that even worse on a lot of levels because there's algorithms now. Sure. I mean, I don't know. You probably don't know TikTok then, but on the TikTok algorithm, <laughs> cool it it's yeah, it's like incredible. They figure out very quickly the type of content you want to see and they just keep feeding it to you. So it's very hard to click out of it. And so I have to ask you, <laughs> what do you think this is doing to our level of bias mm. when we constantly are online, even more so because the algorithms are doing it, surrounding ourselves in this really similar think tank of people who think and talk just like me, what would you say to somebody who's trying to expose themselves to different viewpoints? How do you think they should do that?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the echo chamber phenomenon online is, is real. And then some people have it already going on in their life. Right. So if you're a part of the majority culture within your larger context, it it's, it's, pretty common that you have a homogenous circle already. (laughs) So so I would give that disclaimer to say that some people, depending on their their social location, even more desperately need to get out of the internet echo Mm -hmm. chamber (laughs) because they already have that like outside of the internet. I would also say though, that I have a high value for affinity group spaces. And I think there is something to be said about what we're able to get in the affinity space that allows us then to go out in a broader mm. place. And I think of it that way. So my goal in, in cultivating an affinity space, whether it's in a higher ed space, whether it's online, whether it's podcasting or whatever it is, my goal of the affinity space is not that we stay in the affinity space. We go there and we serve and, and, and we are served. We are with people who get the joke, yeah, <laughs> right? You know, which is a lovely experience, right? People, you don't have to explain what you're saying and why you're saying it this way. It's good for us to have spaces that are like that. It, it can even serve as a bit of an inoculation, right? So if you, you know, thinking about, you know, being vaccinated, right? Being inoculated in some way, right? So that we can then find ourselves in other places and be ready to show up in an authentic way, in a patient way, in a way that's not fully triggered and exhausted, <laughs> right? Mm. Because we've been able to to draw from the well of community, of acceptance and I think we need that. And um, now, again, I do think that there are real problems intellectually and socially when we are just always in an echo chamber. Our thoughts are not challenged. Um, We're not we're not trained to sit with the discomfort of difference and learning to value it and to mature and to grow into it. Of course, there are consequences. Right. But I do think affinity spaces have their place. You Mm. know, I'm an all girl school graduate (laughs) (laughs) and and we we tend to be a bit on the intense side. (laughs) Which is fine. And it's because the world is wild and we need some women that are on the intense side to be like, that's crazy. Stop it. Right. So, uh, so, so I'm here for that. But, but one of the blessings I think, and I look to that experience as being really formative for me as, as when I was this 15 year old Christine, I was in an all girls school and what it meant to be in an affinity space where the class clown, the person that was the smartest Mm. in math and physics, they were all Girls. (laughs) Girls, <laughs> um, and you know, I was like the head of the the math, engineering, science <laughs> achievement club. Things that I'm not trying to be involved with right now in my life, right? So, but in that space, it was like, hey, go for it. And when I finally went back to a co-ed space, right? It wasn't that people thought like, oh, we're not going to be able to relate to men because you went to an all-girls school. Actually, I think I went into that space with an advantage because I was so secure wow. in what women are capable of doing. That I was not looking to men to tell me what I was capable right. of doing. <laughs> I was like, why would I look to them for that? I was so convinced because of the affinity, Sim- similar to the fact, that, you know, I went to historically black college and university, a two time graduate, and I was so convinced, like I've never found myself with the tension, at least consciously, certainly implicitly, absolutely, we internalize all kinds of racist messaging, but consciously of looking for mm. a, a white mm. voice to say, you're a good black person. (laughs) Like, oh, no, 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 no. What was poured into me and how I was challenged in the affinity space. And honestly, there are some spaces where it takes some degree of commonality, shared identity in order for us to be challenged. Right. And so it is in that all female space or in that all African-American space, et cetera, or or maybe even all like Christian space of particular tradition where someone can actually tap you on the shoulder and say like, hey, you need to pull up or I think <laughs> I think you're out of pocket, or I think you're wrong here, or there's another way to see this. And people oftentimes don't realize that sometimes in those spaces with shared commonality, great challenge can take place too. And so I would say in the echo chambers online, it's just important that we're there to try to just get some comfort from a chaotic world where we feel highly othered. I get that. I really, truly get Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. But that even in those spaces, we still need to be telling each other the truth, (laughs) Mm. right, and sharpening each other uh, in the safety of those spaces.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org viraljesus today.
1: You are fantastic. Oh, thank you, Heather. (laughs) I I love that. And and I'm hearing, I just, I I can think of students who always felt so othered in their church experiences and because of online echo chambers have been able to even just keep their faith. You know where I think they probably would have walked away had they not found voices that they said, "Oh, this feels right, and this feels like the God that I've experienced." So,
2: yeah, I just think that that's is that so good, and that's that's so heartbreaking to me. I think at the end of the day, one of the reasons why I share out online is because, <laughs> to the extent that that particular day, I'm not coming across as one of the crazy Christians. I'm hoping that because <laughs> I might be, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping that someone will have a bit of what I was very, very privileged to have, which was this world of, it wasn't exclusively Christian, but there were so many just beautiful, wonderful Christians in my development growing up. The people that would just stop by our home, the people that my parents still serve with now as deacons at their church. I mean, and what they would be able to speak into me and having proximity to them. And most of them were not professional Christians. They weren't like pastors or (laughs) religious leaders. They were just, you know, my, my auntie, not biological, but communally, you know, that worked at the post office (laughs) with Mm -hmm. with dignity and kindness, right. You know, school teachers uh, that were always in my life and who are also believers. So part of it is that to the extent that I can mirror that legacy is why I plug myself in. So that someone who maybe is Gen Z would say like, oh man, these Christians are really cutting up on the local news. Right, right. And then they might say like, I- I'm pretty sure that woman, Christina, is a Christian. She talks about it every single day. <laughs> she, <laughs> talks, she talks <laughs> about she needs Jesus every single day. And she seems to be charitable. Like she seems to be kind of right. you know kind to people or, or open to learning different ideas. <laughs> so whatever extent I can do that, I just want to add that additional little narrative to this really loud narrative um, of of what I would call kind of cruel Christians.
1: You tweeted recently, always amazed at how fragile people are, always amazed at how resilient people are, handle with care and have clear expectations and boundaries. As a psychologist and mental health therapist, what advice would you give somebody about how to have good boundaries for themselves.
2: Oh man. So as one of my my good buddies, and Iwan often says, you know, boundaries protect what is sacred, right? And and I think about that as it relates to the law of God, the commandments of God, right? And one of the things about I think our Christian maturation is as we grow up in the faith, there (laughs) I mean there are still things that I look at in scripture and I'm like, I don't know about that Jesus. Like what are we talking about here? (laughs) You know, and I will do that until I see him. Yes. I will probably feel that way about a variety of things until I see the Lord face to face. Right. Uh, And thank God for grace. And we get to do that. But as I've matured, I've realized, you know what? God's law is good. It is perfect. In other words, God's boundaries are good and, um, Mm. and it allows us to flourish. And so we don't often need to go wide. We need to go deeper and boundaries can sometimes let us Go deeper and deeper, and um, I encourage people to have boundaries in the way in their relationships, and <laughs> their expectations of themselves. The last two years have been exhausting. Like someone texted me the other day, and they were like, "How are you doing?" And usually, yeah. people are like, "No, fine, I'm good." And I think I said three words. I was like, "I am exhausted." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, I'm achy because I just got a booster mm-hmm. shot. Praise yeah. the Lord for booster shot." I was like, "I'm exhausted. I'm achy," and I was like, "I'm a little discouraged." <laughs> And, um, and in fact, to be honest, those three words yeah. in some ways describe the last year and a half, two years of like COVID mania. You know, it's like, I'm exhausted. I'm a little achy and achy in all kinds of ways, like mm-hmm. emotionally achy and, and physically achy <laughs> as well at times. Um, and and a little discouraged by what I am seeing or experiencing or the, the loss of life. So many things, right? And because of that, there is a need for boundaries. There's a need for us to say, okay, I just can't keep going on as is. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> That it's not wild out here. It's like it is wild out here right now. And so it is so important to have the boundary of saying that I just cannot do life as usual. That's another expression of a boundary. And obviously, boundaries and relationships about what we tolerate in terms of how people treat us to the extent that we have agency. Right. There are some experiences we don't have the ability to push back in that moment, but at least in our minds, we can push back. We can put a boundary up in our minds and say, "This is not right. <laughs> this is not how it ought to be." Even if we can't escape mm-hmm. the the mistreatment, right? And then certainly, when we can, we set boundaries up to say that this is not what is going to come into my space anymore. So, I really encourage people to think about that as an expression of self love, which is necessary in order to do neighbor love, <laughs> right? Um, and so those things go go together. And so, mm-hmm. um, and also, if we're not setting able to set our own kind of personal boundaries, we we find ourselves unintentionally violating other people's boundaries, expecting more out of them than we should and crossing the line when we should not cross the line. And so, again, looking into self (laughs) and and getting our own house in order um, and putting up some proper boundaries so that we can we can be cared for as, as we need to be cared for.
1: I listened recently to a really good sermon by T.D. Jakes where he was talking Mm. about the story of the 10 virgins and how for every wise person, there's a fool looking to drain your oil and (laughs) learn how to tell them no go get your own. And I was just like, man, I've never heard anybody describe that story in that mm-hmm. way. It was yeah, he's a, He it was is so a, he's a
2: tremendous storyteller. Tremendous. So good, tremendous. right? Mm-hmm.
1: So you are the co-author of a new book, Faithful Anti-Racism. Here's a little bit about it. It says, it's time to move past talk. It's no longer news to most of us that our society has a deep-seated racism problem. Christians of all ethnic and economic backgrounds are tired of seeing the ugly legacy of racism play out before their eyes and feeling ill-equipped to respond. They watch as friends and family members leave the visible church over this issue or fall prey to a gospel of white nationalism that is an affront to the cross of Christ. What are practical ways that Christians can engage in active anti-racism mm. action? And I'll say like uh, as somebody I was recently teaching, I've since switched locations, but I was teaching at a very predominantly white right-wing school. And I was honestly shocked by how many of my white students really cared Mm -hmm. about anti-racism. I mean, literally, and especially they they were really questioning a lot of their faith because they and they say to me, "The people who taught me." about church and taught me about what it means to follow after Christ. They're like, I don't trust them anymore. And what am I left with? And how do I work towards a new understanding of what it means to be Christian? What has this past couple of years been Mm. like for somebody like you who actually works in this space? Where, what you're saying, people are achy Mm. and exhausted.
2: Right, right. Right. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been an adventure. It's been incredibly difficult. Yeah, that narrative of students, particularly, uh, I would say, identifying students who um, have have been in certain Christian communities. There are so many that are grieving. There are so yeah. many that are angry. And I think it's easy, and I'm saying this as, as someone who's a, who's an outsider, just you know, culturally in terms of my, my own identification, but at least for what I'm able to observe from the outside, in there's a kind of a caricaturing of these people that are now wrestling with, and because they're frustrated and they've been hurt, and so I think it's easy to dismiss it as like they're just rebellious, and you just never were serious enough about the faith to begin with, versus saying how have we harmed them. <laughs> How have we harmed mm-hmm. them?
1: It starts with looking inside,
2: like you said, Christina, right? Yes. And the we in this, for example, might be, might be their pastors, their parents, their grandparents, right? And, and I would caution people, particularly of that particular demographic group, to not waste any more time mm-hmm. pretending. Ask yourself the question and come out like the weeping prophets inviting them back home. Mm. Because I promise you, if people are saying how mad they are and they're able to verbalize it, then there still might be hope (laughs) because they're angry enough to share it. Right. And instead of being like, I can't believe they're saying what they're saying, saying like, I'm so glad they're still talking. I'm so glad they're still talking about us. Right. There's still enough connection there to even be angry with us. Right. And become a weeping prophet arms open. And so that, that's just that's just me trying to encourage whoever is listening mm-hmm. uh, to not wash your hands, to not give up, to do the hard work, to stay present and to hear the criticism, which might be the spirit working through the voice of a hurting person mm. telling you to self examine. I mean, that is, does happen. <laughs> right. Anyway, so in terms of anti-racism, you know, I think that a couple of things just quickly is that we have to reckon with real history I know that seems very basic, but there is so much <laughs> there is quite the fight against it. I mean literal fight. <laughs> and so I mean it, it's important that we again move away from mythology. And so every kind of you know like great earthly like kingdom right or, or or group, you know, not only has this kind of historical narratives, but they've got their mythology, right where they kind of prop themselves mm-hmm. up and we're we're this and we're that and uh, hello, America. <laughs> We have a long narrative about, you know, how we are just like almost like a magical land of opportunity and the streets are gold and <laughs> all the things. And, and And I think that we can hold the tension. So what I like the most about the United States and, you know, and I'm an American, <laughs> what, what, I, what I like most about the United <laughs> States is I like the narratives of people who pushed back and resisted, you know? And so when I think about, you know, the fact that my $20 bill still doesn't have Harriet Tubman's face on it, I'm like, wait a minute, I need somebody to fix this. We don't know who a real hero is, right? That's to mm-hmm. me, one of the biggest burdens that we need to quickly a- attack and deal with is that we don't know who is worthy of wow. Our heroes reveal something about us just as much as our villains do. Wow. And and so that saddens me because when I think about, you know, who, who we should, you know, have a monument of, that, that's who you want to have a, mo- a monument. Of A woman who embodied liberation. So we talk about, you know, the land of the free. Clearly, you might want to honor someone like that. Right. So and I I think that we just have to wrestle with history. And I encourage Christians, particularly people who feel really angry, frustrated with the church, feel like they've been lied to, set up all the things as we just alluded to, encourage them to not give up on the full narrative, the full story of the church. Because there have always been people that has been resisting, that's been pushing, that's been tugging, that's been risking uh, for the sake of love. Mm. And we have a choice about who we want to identify with. Who are the mothers of the faith that I want to be mothered by? <laughs> and that's mm. one of the beauties of the beauty of Christianity is that we can claim a family beyond generations and beyond location. So I can look to, you know, the church of North Africa and I can look and say, oh, I'm going to borrow that church mother <laughs> to mother me today, right? Mm-hmm. And we can do that now. So as people are desperate for heroes, I encourage them again, dig through history, dig through it, dig through it, and find people that can encourage you um, and that we're not alone. This disappointment is not a new thing. And there are people who continue to walk And then Ultimately, right, what we want to tell people is to look to Jesus, <laughs> who yeah. does not disappoint in the sense that all things are being made new. And, you know, and I, and I encourage them as we think about anti-racism, that Jesus's blood-bought gift to us is this destruction of division and disparities. Not a destruction of differences, but a destruction of division and disparities. And whenever we find ourselves comfortable with or actively building and maintaining or complicit in the divisions and disparity, then we are pish-poshing the glorious sacrifice of Christ. This is a (laughs) blood-bought gift to us. And so anti-racism to me becomes an act of worship. It is an act of worship because when I think about what Christ has done, what Christ gave up, what, what Christ has conquered via the resurrection and overcome, that great veil, that partition has been ripped. I will not sit at the bottom and knit it back together. I won't sew it back together. And that's what bigotry does. That's what social caste mm-hmm. systems does. That's what racism does. It, it's attempting to weave back together what Christ's blood has torn apart. Now, ultimately, it cannot be put back together. <laughs> ultimately, mm-hmm. Christ reigns. And that gives me hope. So if I'm talking to people and I'm like, Lord, they just don't get it. Or man, or I'm, less, I'm just like, they super racist. They're not just racist. They're like supersonic racist. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like <laughs> They're like, old school races, right? <laughs> Remix. It's still a lot of racist stuff going on, Heather. We know this, right? So anyway, b- but what gives me hope is that even ultimately, I'm like, you know what? Your limitations, just like my limitations, my brokenness and my sin, even the ones I think I'm entitled to, they are not going to rob God of ultimate glory. They are not going to destroy this plan. Amen. And so I can stay present with boundaries with boundaries, (laughs) I can (laughs) say present with boundaries in this work of anti-racism. And for me, it is again, a form of worship and agreement with God about how God has made people and humanity and the necessary equity that is a fruit of the gospel.
1: You are such a breath of fresh air. Dr. Christina <laughs> Edmondson is the co author of the brand new book, Faithful Anti Racism Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, releasing March 2022. I asked people on Twitter if they could ask you anything. What would they ask you? I want to read at least one of those okay. to you. <laughs> CKP Alive says, would love to hear how her and Truce Table, this is your podcast, yeah. ladies, <laughs> have been able to successfully thrive together, each with growing individual platforms, without being in competition with each other. Their sisterhood is noteworthy and
2: should be praised. Yeah. Oh, that's well. Wow, that's a really, really lovely. I question. thought it was Isn't too. That, that's why
1: I wanted to make yeah, sure yeah. that we talked about um, it.
2: We, I don't think we look at each other as competitors. <laughs> I that it almost makes me chuckle. No, 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 no. And I don't know if I'm looking at hardly, I mean, <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I, we, I think I do wrestle with um, a sense of uh, maybe even envy at times, just like, oh, why isn't this happening for me? Or I, you know, or whatever. But I don't think I live there. And I don't know, I just have yeah. a high value in like dancing for others when they are succeeding. <laughs> I'm just like, yay, you're doing the thing. Yay. So, and and, and also I, one of the things I don't know. If uh, people may not know this, that all three of us, as, as it relates to Truth's Table, we are all, you know, siblings of all girl sets, right? So all of us in our family of origin, we only have sisters, <laughs> And I've mentioned before, you know, I'm a product of an all-girls school and member of a sorority. Oh, so like the, the idea that like women cheer for each other and that we're like, do the thing, go for it. You know, like that's, that's kind of like built into who we are. And also the fact that we can have debates, like we can disagree. Again, this growing up in a home with nothing but sisters, all of us, we can say like, I think that's terrible or you're wrong about that. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I think that we, and then still be family. And still be family, you know, love is a commitment and um, being committed to love someone, which I think is part of what friendship is. It's a commitment to love someone, not to always agree with them, (laughs) but to love them. Right. And the test of love is actually if it persists Mm. in the midst of disagreement. Right. Um, yeah. Otherwise, yes. what you really love is the fact that you're like me, right? It's kind of a narcissistic so love, right? So the real test of it is that it is can this love stand while there's diversity of thought and and experiences and opportunities, and that's the case certainly that that we have as well. So, um, I I mean, I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy loving my my co-hosts. Like I, enjoy, I, <laughs> I think they're a hoot as people, um, and yeah. So and I enjoy learning from them. I'm the oldest one uh, from, at the table, and but a is- a
1: young Gen Xer,
2: a uh, young. What we're gonna call yes. it? Put, put some weight. Put some weight <laughs> on that young part. Heather, the young, <laughs> young, and trying to be vibrant. Okay, that's right. And um, but but Akimini is the oldest sister in her family subset, youngest of us, but oldest in her subset. So sometimes she kind of up, kind of like the older Nigerian sister, gets us to, <laughs> and, get, and gets us together. Okay, which is very important. And Michelle and I are youngest sisters. Uh, we're the youngest sister in our in our sibling subset. And anybody who's watched us live can notice this <laughs> because Michelle and I often sit off to the side and cackle, mm. ah! and then Akimani like holds it together. <laughs> She's like, "Will you all focus?" I'm like, "I'm ready. I have my notes." You know. So um, yeah, that's a really sweet question. We don't yeah. look at each other. I don't think as, as competitors, and I don't think I look. I try not to look at. Anybody, I think that God is a God of abundance. There really is enough right. stuff, like, we should not have. Yes. There should not be scarcity in, in this world. That <laughs> We should not be functioning out of a scarcity perspective. There yes. really is enough. There's enough for healthcare. There's enough for food. There is enough. We just have to open up our hands. Um, so
1: I just want to read the name of your book again, because yeah. I just your anointing is so clear. And I know that this topic is so important. Mm-hmm. So please, right now, you can get this wherever books are sold. Dr. Christina Edmondson, the co-author of the brand new book, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change releasing March 2022. My last question for you is something I've been asking everybody. Our show is called Viral Jesus and virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we 2,000 years later best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is for us today?
2: Mm, Oh my goodness. Jesus was and is. (laughs) Uh, Jesus was and is uh, humanity's greatest and only mm-hmm. hope. And the embodiment of that is expressed not not just in Jesus's power or unbelievable wisdom or ability to work miracles then and now, because <laughs> being moved from being dead and sin and trespasses into being a co heir with Christ, trust me, that's a miracle at work now. The beauty of it is embodied in Christ's humility. <laughs> And in a world where people are defined by how much they have and how much they can keep and who they can stand over, uh, the God of the universe condescended and became one of us, (laughs) became one of us. And I believe 2000 years ago, just like today, that message of a love that is so profound from a God that is so secure (laughs) that he would come down to where we are uh, so that when we pray now, Mm -hmm. Jesus is like, yeah, I get it. I get it. So, a God who put himself in the position to get it. And uh, we have so many people who feel unheard, unseen, unloved, and maybe actually are. There is a God who gets it, decided to walk the earth to really get it. And Jesus intercedes for us even right now. And that is a beautiful image, but more importantly, a beautiful reality. And I would encourage people to entrust themselves to that Jesus.
1: Thanks, Christina Edmondson, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral Homework. I told you earlier, this is our last episode of season two. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to join me to listen to these conversations and to grow with me. I have some exciting changes coming next season. We will be doing some solo episodes where instead of you listening in on me having a conversation, you and I are just going to have a conversation. And I will talk to you about what I'm reading right now, what's challenging me, what's saving me, and what I'm feeling uncertain about. We will, of course sit down with some incredible Christian thought leaders and learn from them as well as we navigate our communication both online and off. But your homework until we meet again for season three of Viral Jesus is, I really want you to hear me. And especially in a time where there's just so much dividing us. Friend, you have to stay in community. Christina said something this episode that really struck me, and it is that we have to have safe spaces. We have to have spaces where we have the ability to just be surrounded by people who we know love us and where we know our words are valued so that we have the energy to be able to withstand the work of being able to speak into spaces and communities that will feel more laborious and more intense. So please, my encouragement and my invitation to you in the next couple months here is to just stay in community stay in safe spaces, allow yourself to lay on someone else's couch and just be appreciated without being challenged. That is how we maintain our energy to be able to do the work that is set before us. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson-Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I will see you in September with another season of Viral Jesus where we will learn how to live and talk in Christ together. I love growing with you. On Viral Jesus.
0: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.